0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. January 8, 2003. Air Midwest Flight 5481, a Beechcraft 1900D with 21 people on board is preparing to take off from Charlotte, North Carolina for a quick flight to Greer, South Carolina. The plane takes off at 8:46 a.m. and immediately after becoming airborne, the plane's nose begins to pitch up rapidly. Just 90 feet off the ground, the nose is pitched up to 20 degrees. Both pilots are trying to push the nose down, but the plane continues pitching up. Eventually, the pitch reaches 54 degrees. The stall warning sounds, and at an altitude of 1,150 feet, the plane stalls and crashes back into the ground, hitting a maintenance hangar at the airport. The plane was in the air for approximately 35 seconds. What happened to cause Air Midwest Flight 5481 to stall and crash immediately after takeoff? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris with another Black Box Down episode. (laughs) Hello,
1: Chris.
0: (laughs) Hello. I don't know what to say. I feel like we always say the same thing. I see. So we have this recording software that we use. We're not... To peel the curtain back behind uh, Black Box Down. When we record this podcast, Chris and I are not in the same room. We have like this web interface. And uh, for the first time ever, I think I've seen Chris make a note in the web interface. I didn't mean to. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All I, saw, all I saw, there's like a little chat area and Chris wrote January 8th, 2003, <laughs> which is the date of this incident. I've just never seen you do anything in there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was like, I normally will have a little notepad or something or I'll type mm-hmm. it up in a notes doc, but then I didn't have that doc up. So I just started typing in the first, and, then, <laughs> and then I was trying to go to the next line and hit enter, I was like, oh, crap. this is good. <laughs> So we, I then moved it to my that's, email. That's really
0: funny. Okay. Well, uh, we're back before we dive into this episode, uh, before we talk more about Chris's note-taking Idiosyncrasies, I want to remind everyone we have some new merch for Black Box Down available at store.roosterteeth.com. And we have some animated episodes called Aviation Explanation, which you can find on our YouTube channel, which is Black Box Down, uh, as well as at Rooster Teeth. So if you check that out, we'd really appreciate it. It's not whole episodes of Black Box Down. It's just parts of episodes that may have been confusing to listen to in audio format. We, tried to, we had an animation team go out and animate to show exactly what was happening.
1: My favorite thing is the... Uh little autopilot robot the way autopilot is represented in the show yeah i thought uh it's it's a really cool look it's like a little robot wearing a pilot's cap <laughs> it's really and then like well there's just one episode uh where it's dealing with um the two pilots wrestling with the controls where they're you know both trying to do different, different inputs things. and yeah. it shows like the robots like confused yeah confused fighting with each other and it's like i don't know it's all really well animated and i think it's awesome
0: I think it's great. It's, like I said, it's on our YouTube channel, which is Black Box Down. Uh, there's some episodes also on the Rooster Teeth YouTube channel, which is just Rooster Teeth. Check them out. Like I said, there's some episodes on each channel. Uh, go watch all of them. I think they turned out great.
1: Yeah. And share them.
0: Oh, and share them and subscribe. Yeah. All that normal YouTuber stuff. We're a podcast, so we're not used to saying that. <laughs> like and subscribe, all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, we're to saying subscribe, but you know. Subscribe. Yeah. Share.
0: It's in the same, same idea. Gener- same idea. Yeah. Same realm. Okay, so today we're talking about Air Midwest flight 5481. So this is a passenger flight from Charlotte, North Carolina to Greer, South Carolina, like you wrote in our chat here, January 8th, 2003. (laughs) The flight was crewed by Captain Catherine Katie Leslie, who was 25 years old, had about 1,865 total company flying time. She was the youngest captain for this airline at the time. The first officer was Jonathan Gibbs, who was 27 years old, had about 706 total company flying time. The aircraft used was a Beechcraft 1900D, which is a small twin turboprop airplane that seats about 19 passengers. So it's probably smaller than what you think of as being like a normal airline plane.
1: Uh huh.
0: It's one of the planes that has, you know, like I said, twin propellers, but the wings are low. It's not one of those high wing regional planes. And like I said, the seats only 19 passengers. So it's definitely a much smaller plane than uh, what you typically think of
1: as being a plane that an airline
0: would use. But it's perfectly suited for this kind of stuff, like short trips.
1: Yeah. North to South Carolina. I'm not even sure how far that is, but, I mean, the name doesn't even fully change. (laughs) That's an excellent way to think of it. If you were to
0: drive from the middle of Charlotte to the middle of Greer, Mm -hmm. it would be 90 miles. What?
1: That's... Oh, man, that is it.
0: It's not far at all.
1: Yeah, that would have been like a 20-minute flight.
0: Oh, yeah. Really, really, really quick.
1: That's so short.
0: In looking at a map, the Charlotte airport's on the side of the city, Towards Greer, So it's even closer. It's more, it's probably realistically airport to airport. It's probably closer to 80 miles. So between 80 to 90 miles driving. So, you know, when you fly, you're oh. going straight. So it's even, even quicker. So it's, a, it's supposed to be a real, real quick trip. So this plane was relatively new. It was delivered to Air Midwest in August of 1996. So it was about seven years old, not quite seven years old. It had fifteen thousand three flight hours and 21,332 cycles. Uh, and like we mentioned, there were 19 passengers on board this flight, which was the maximum capacity of uh, this kind of plane. Yeah. So the day before this incident, the plane had landed in Charlotte after coming from West Virginia. No problems, no issues were reported when the plane was handed off. The first officer from the previous flight told the next first officer that everything was normal and it was a good flying airplane. Captain Leslie and First Officer Gibbs then flew their trip sequences from about 1.40 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. And then another crew flew the plane from Charlotte to Lynchburg, Virginia that night, then flew it back the next morning on January 8th. So the crew of this flight had even flown this plane the day before the incident. And then, you know, another crew flew it after them out to Lynchburg and then brought it back to Charlotte. And then the morning of the incident, this crew, you know, was flying again. And again, all of these flights, no incidents, nothing unusual noticed by any of the crews. So around 8 a.m. on the morning of the 8th, the crew was finalizing their pre-flight paperwork and they're going over weight and balance, all that stuff. And they departed the gate on time at about 8.30 a.m. About five minutes later, the crew tested their flight controls and the flight data recorder recorded values from 15 degrees nose up and 16.5 degrees nose down. This part of pre-flight, you move all of your controls to make sure you have full range of motion. I think they call it, you make sure your controls are free and correct that you can move the yoke everywhere you need to and you can stomp on the rudders all the way you need to as well.
1: Like make sure it's not like gummed
0: up? Right, like it doesn't get stuck or like there's something wrong with it. Okay. So when they do this, you know, the the FDR, the flight data recorder, says that, you know, the values for the elevator go from 15 degrees nose up to 16.5 degrees nose down. In reality, these values corresponded to elevator positions from full nose up to 7 degrees nose down. I'm going to expand on that a little later in the episode. I just want to point that out right now. So at 846, the tower controller cleared flight 5481 for takeoff and instructed the crew to turn right heading 230 after takeoff. 30 seconds later, the airplane was at a speed of 102 knots with the elevator position at seven degrees nose down. About three seconds later, the elevator's position was one degree nose up and the airplane's pitch attitude began to increase. Five seconds after this, the pitch trim started moving nose down, and the captain called for the landing gear to be retracted. Then the elevator position returned to seven degrees nose down, and the sound of the landing gear retraction is recorded in the cockpit voice recorder. Okay. So, so far, everything seems to be okay. Uh At 847, the first officer made a what sound, and the captain said, oh, and then help me. Uh Uh-oh. At this point, the airplane was about 90 feet above the ground. So, like, literally just taken off, right? The airplane's pitch shifted to 20 degrees nose up, and it was at a speed of 139 knots. The captain then asked the first officer, you got it? Over the next eight seconds, both pilots tried to force the airplane's nose down. The cockpit voice recorder recorded a change in the engine noise, and the stall warning horn started going off. Eleven seconds after the first officer's first what noise, the airplane was in a 54-degree nose-up position, which... A lot. Is extreme, right. If you think about it, like straight up from the ground, like perpendicular to the ground is 90 degrees. Half of that is 45. So they were over, you know, they were closer to 90 than to zero. So it's like, it's a really extreme angle that they're at. So obviously not good. (laughs) They They should not be at that. The captain called air traffic control saying they had an emergency. And then the stall warning horn ended as the airplane's pitch decreased through zero degrees and the elevator began to move nose up. Wait, so what? So the stall warning horn ended because the pitch decreased to zero degrees. So they went from 54 down past zero. So they went from, they're basically they're stalling at this point. Okay. So the, the w- nose is pointed really extreme up and then comes all the way down. Okay. So at 847 and 19 seconds, the airplane was about 1,150 feet above the ground, and the flight data recorder recorded a 127 degree roll to the left and a minimum airspeed of 31 knots. So 127 degrees roll to the left. That's over. They're almost inverted. Because 180 degrees would be inverted. Why did they start rolling? It's part of the stall. A stall can be complicated. Uh If one wing stalls more than the other wing, then one's generating more lift than another. So it'll Uh start a roll uh, as part of the stall. Okay,
1: yeah. That makes sense.
0: They had low altitude. But given enough altitude, if you enter this situation where one wing is more stalled than another and you're stalling, then it can develop into a spin. So most likely they were starting to enter into a spin at this point if they're in a 127 degree roll. Yeah. About a second later, the pitch was 42 degrees nose down. So they're upside down with the plane pointed down. Correct. Not quite, you know, 180 degrees upside down, but 127, they're almost all the way upside down. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. And they're, they're pitching nose down. The captain then called for the power to be pulled back. The elevator was now full nose up, and the airplane's pitch was 39 degrees nose down. The stall warning horn then sounded again. At 8.47 and 22 seconds, the roll stabilized at about 20 degrees left wing down. The pitch attitude began to increase, and the elevator position moved in the nose down direction. They've kind of fixed the roll. You know, their pitch begins to increase. Then the elevator position moved in the nose up direction to about 8 degrees nose up. And the airplane rolled right through wings level and a pitch attitude increased to about five degrees nose down from 39 degrees nose down. So they rolling right, kind of correcting how they were almost inverted. Mm -hmm. Their pitch attitude is now five degrees up instead of 39 degrees
1: down. So they're recovering at this point. That's crazy. I was like, how do you recover from upside down, pointed down?
0: Yeah. uh, Well, uh, normally you need a lot of altitude to recover from that. Yeah. But they're really low when all this is happening.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Unfortunately for them though, as you know, they're starting to stabilize here, the flight data recorder then recorded a maximum right roll of 68 degrees and vertical acceleration of 1.9 G. So they're overcorrecting now.
1: Oh no. So they,
0: they go from 127 degrees to the left. Now they're 68 degrees to the right. So they're just, you know, fighting with the plane. And the cockpit voice recorder stopped recording at 847 and 28 seconds. The flight data recorder's last recorded pitch attitude was 47 degrees nose down, roll attitude was 66 degrees to the right, and the pitch control position was 19.2 degrees nose up, which is elevator position of full nose up. And when they hit the ground, they actually struck a U.S. Airways maintenance hangar located on the airport. This happened about 1,650 feet east of runway 18 right, about 7,600 feet beyond the runway threshold. And everyone on board was killed. And one person on the ground received a minor injury.
1: So this all happened... Mm -hmm so fast and not even, and so close to the airport. Like they,
0: yeah, I mean, the crash was on the airport property. You know, they were in the air 35 seconds. They didn't even get, they didn't even clear the airport property when all of this happened. So it's funny, like me describing everything that happened took way longer than what actually, than, you know, the actual course of events.
1: That's what I was going to say. I was like, wow. I mean, the way you describe, like just going through the moment by moment, it's like, it sounded like, well, surely it's a couple of minutes, but
0: yeah. No, it's, yeah. It's, it's barely like half a minute. It all happened so so quickly. Um, I mean, it's a, it's really extreme what they went through. You know, like we talked about, 127 degrees roll to one side, then you know 68 degrees to the other side, and then you know just nose going up and down. they you know they were all over the place. They were really really struggling to fight to control the plane and bring it under control. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB, mm-hmm. and they found there was a problem between the elevator pitch and the actual pitch control position of the aircraft. Oh, like we went over a lot of confusing numbers in talking about this incident. And this is the reason why. And I remember I mentioned the elevator position earlier, and I said I would get to that later. Mm-hmm. We're going to start getting into that now. Just to clarify, I need to explain what the elevator is. We've talked about this before. The elevator is on the horizontal stabilizer. So if you think about the tail of the plane, not the part that goes up and down, but the part that goes like left and right is the horizontal stabilizer. At the back of that, is the elevator. And it's like a piece of the tail that can move up and down that helps move the plane's attitude and nose up and down. So when the pilots pull back on their yoke, the elevator deflects and, you know, is what helps make the plane climb. And when they push down or they push forward, the elevator deflects in the other direction and helps the plane nose down. So that's the elevator.
1: So the elevator is like super important.
0: Yes. Very important. <laughs> you know, for. Controlling the, the attitude, uh, like whether the plane's going up or down. Mm-hmm. So normally on this beach 1900D, the elevator goes from 20 degrees to 21 degrees, airplane nose up, to 14 to 15 degrees, airplane nose down. And the neutral position is zero degrees. So okay. about 20 degrees in one direction, about 14 to 15 degrees in the other direction. And the neutral should be zero. Yeah. The elevator control check in the beach 1900D involves moving the control column from the full forward position to the full aft position. That's why I talk about, like, checking the controls to make sure they're free and correct. Uh Like, moving them to make sure your controls physically move through all that space. And in theory, when you're doing that, it should be moving the elevator through its full range of motion as well. And, you know, when the system is properly rigged and working correctly, the flight data recorder pitch correction position accurately reflects the elevator position. Okay. However, in this accident flight... The recorded pitch control positions did not reflect the actual elevator positions. So the flight data recorder is recording the correct positions, but the elevator wasn't actually moving correctly. It was not moving what the flight data recorder showed. It wasn't moving correctly according to the inputs that the pilots were giving.
1: So how did they figure this out?
0: Oh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a whole lot. That, that, we, <laughs> do you have about 30 minutes to talk about this? <laughs> Before we get into that, we are going to explain how this happens. I do want to clarify, the recorded pitch control positions were about nine degrees more nose down than the actual elevator positions. So the elevator was actually nosing down more than the flight data recorder showed and more than the controls reflected for the
1: pilots. So when they got the data back, it looked like the plane wasn't doing all the crazy stuff. It looked like the
0: elevator was responding correctly to the pilot's inputs. But then... I guess there's
1: probably a video of this, right? Because it's at an airport, right?
0: I don't know if there's any video of it. It was also 2003. It's easy to Mm. think nowadays that there would be video, you know, before the proliferation of smartphone cameras. Yeah. you know, It's a little more rare. But you think at an airport there would be security cameras. I don't know of any footage. But, you know, the way they normally handle these investigations, it's not, you know, obviously the black boxes play a huge role in figuring things out. But, you know, as we've talked about in the past, they try to collect as much of the wreckage as they can and reconstruct the plane oh. as much as they can to see, you know, what was going on in the plane. And, and that's part of what they do here. And, of course, the other thing is they go through maintenance logs. You know, what happened? You know, how airworthy was this plane? You know, we had a recent episode where we talked about, like, what was the financial state of the airline? Mm. You know, like, it, there's a really a lot of digging that goes on in these incidents. But right away, you know, when the NTSB starts this investigation, they see that— This airplane had a detailed maintenance check two days before the incident on January 6,
1: 2003.
0: Okay. So right away, we've learned, oh, you know, they're going to focus. What happened on this maintenance check? What exactly did they do? Because the records show before this, the elevator had a full and normal range of travel. But after the maintenance check, the downward elevator travel was limited to about seven degrees, and the elevator position was not consistent with the pitch control position recorded on the flight data recorder. So they see very quickly that something happened at this maintenance check. Oh. That made the elevator not respond normally anymore. Because, again, everything's documented. They can see from before and then you see after.
1: Yeah. It's weird, though, because they did fly on it the day before. So it must have gotten worse.
0: Correct. Yeah. you're. I mean, that's that's something we're going to talk about is other people flew this plane. This exact crew flew this plane and nothing happened. Why was this particular flight different? What caused, you know, whatever was wrong to Mm -hmm. fail catastrophically at this time? So uh, I just want to talk about the flight data recorder recording just very quickly here. In case you haven't noticed, this episode has a lot of numbers. We're talking about a lot of degrees. Uh, I need to throw a few more numbers out at you. So the typical cruise flight elevator position was determined to be four degrees nose down. But the pitch control position recorded on this flight data recorder was 13 degrees nose down making a nine-degree nose-down shift. So they can see there's a big difference here. The NTSB examined the maintenance work performed to see whether any of the work resulted in the airplane's restricted downward elevator movement. And part of the maintenance check that they had done two days before this incident was checking the tension of the elevator control system cables and then adjusting that tension. Oh, So again, you know, they're starting to dig into Uh this and they seem like, oh... This is very clearly leading to something happened in this maintenance. Or it seems like, obviously, they don't, they don't want to speculate. But, you know, as they're starting to dig more and more, it's like, oh, it's looking more and more like something happened in this maintenance. Mm-hmm. So the structural modification repair technicians mechanic who performed this work had never done this before on a beach 1900D. Oh. This was his first time performing this maintenance. Did he do it by himself? He was actually receiving training at the time there was a, like, uh, one of the supervisors was telling him how to do it. The supervisor himself was not performing the work. This technician who was in training was doing the work for the first time, and it was a Raytheon Aerospace Quality Assurance Inspector was watching him and telling him what to do in order to do this maintenance. Uh I want to step back for a second here. You know, we've talked about this before. PLA, pilots love acronyms. (laughs) I mentioned it was the Structural Modification Repair Technician. The acronym for that is SMART. (laughs) So if you hear me say the smart mechanic or the smart technician, (laughs) it's the guy who performed the work uh, because he's the structural modification repair technician.
1: I'm sure whoever came that that guy or girl, whoever it was that came up with that acronym was like, I got the best one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a smart mechanic. (laughs) Why is it that clothes
0: that are the most comfortable are the most unattractive? Don't get me wrong. I love my sweatpants. I just don't feel comfortable wearing them outside the house. That's why you got to go check out Public Rec. They make elevated athleisure wear in multidimensional sizes because they believe that comfort starts with a better fit. They make their best-selling all-day everyday pant in over 40 different sizing combinations. Public Rec spent years engineering the perfect blend of softness, stretch, and durability. It's all the performance benefits you love with the added style. For more formal occasions, they also have zipper pockets, so no worrying about phone or wallet falling out when you sit down. I love these pants so much. I replaced, I think, just about every pair of pants I own with Public Rec pants. Uh, I got them because they're they're super comfortable. They look, you know, you wear them to work. It looks like you're wearing slacks, like you're all dressed up. But really, they're like super comfy and stretchy. Plus, I love the zip pockets. I don't ever worry about my phone falling out whenever I sit down. Uh, you can really secure it in there. Absolutely great pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for Black Box Down listeners. Go to publicrec.com. Use promo code Down to receive 10% off. That's publicrec, which is R-E-C dot Use our promo code blackboxdown for 10% off. It's time to kick off your goals for the new year. So why not start with exercise? That's actually fun. It's time for camp. Fight camp. Fight camp brings the best workout in the world into your home. Makes it fun. Learn to box and kickbox from home with access to world-class programming, elite trainers, premium equipment, and smart technology that turns your workout into an interactive experience. Fight camp offers thousands of classes with new workouts added each week. You'll always find something new. Plus, you can use filters to explore different workout styles, lengths, trainers, and difficulty levels. And Fight Camp's got a ton of quick workouts that maximize efficiency with high-intensity interval training. So you can have a killer workout in just 20 minutes. I know it sounds intimidating. I thought it was really intimidating when I first got it. It's actually super simple to set up, super simple to use. I know nothing about working out. And even I was able to like set it all up and start using it really quickly. Uh, it's actually... Super easy, and it's really fun to do. Again, I'm not like a gym person. I'm not a workout person, but even I was able to do this, and I got to say, it's actually really a lot of fun. Uh, Now's the best time to get your Fight Camp. Take advantage of their holiday deal going on right now. If you purchase this month, you'll get an additional pair of gloves for free. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. To get an additional pair of gloves for free, go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. There's too much going on this time of year, so cutting out grocery store trips with HelloFresh is a no-brainer. HelloFresh sends fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes right to your door. Uh, they got some serious seasonal recipes right now already in around 30 minutes or less. We're talking recipes like balsamic and fig beef tenderloin or pecan-crusted salmon, dishes that make holiday meals feel special without the cost of dining out or delivery, or go for a cozy comfort food choice like chicken sausage and sweet potato soup uh, for a cold winter night. And HelloFresh Market has holiday options like their holiday cheese and charcuterie board and skinny dip dark chocolate peppermint almonds. you heard me talk about it before. It's all great. I love having a little project. It's so quick to do. And at the end, uh, you have something you can eat. Uh, And I mean, and the HelloFresh Market's also great. I had some uh, tortilla chips, some blue corn tortilla chips at my house and uh, had family visiting. Uh, My mother wanted some. She tried them. She was like, these are really good. Where can I get them? I was like, well, I've got an ad read for you. Uh, It's all really, really good stuff. So, go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14 for up to 14 free meals and 3 free gifts. That's up to 14 free meals and 3 free gifts at HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14. So, the smart mechanic determined that the cables needed to be adjusted because their average tension was too low. He stated he adjusted them and performed some, but not all of the steps of the elevator control system rigging procedure. However, when cable tension adjustments are made, the entire elevator control system rigging procedure needs to be performed and not just those steps that apply to cable tensioning. So he didn't do all of the steps in the checklist. Why? Because the supervisor who was telling him how to do it told him he didn't need to. Oh he my said God. since they're only adjusting the tension, they only need to do the steps related to that. And I'm going off the top of my head here. I believe that the full... Maintenance procedure is like 21 steps, Mm -hmm. but they only did six of them. And this is the guy teaching people. Correct. So normally the way it works in this kind of maintenance is a mechanic or technician performs the work. Then a separate quality assurance person comes along, inspects Uh it, and also signs off on it. The problem here is that this quality assurance inspector was performing the training, so he signed off both. Oh, God. He signed off on the mechanic work and then he signed off on the quality assurance work when you sh- really it should be two different people signing off on the work done. But it was one person who did it because he was training this other person.
1: Because that's the whole thing is there's always like backups and checklists and and this was the one person, one, right. one line of error.
0: Right. And since this mechanic had never done it before and he was receiving training then this quality assurance inspector should have only been able to sign off as the mechanic doing the work and should have had a different inspector sign off doing the quality assurance. But he just went ahead and signed off on both. And he had given poor instruction to the mechanic. So examination of the airplane's pitch control cable turnbuckles found in the wreckage revealed that the nose down turnbuckle measured 7.3 inches, which is 1.76 inches more than the nose up turnbuckle that measured 5.54 inches. So there, you know, there's these two turnbuckles. One, you know, obviously does nose up. One does nose Mm -hmm. down. Normally, the difference between those turnbuckles on average is 0.04 inches. The difference on this plane that crashed, the difference was 1.76 inches. So there's a huge difference between the turnbuckles, which is why the plane's elevator was not responding like it should have because they were out of whack. One was of a different size than the other, and it was just basically tightened more than it should have been.
1: So it's, it's like a two-pulley system, and they were like... Right. One was tighter than the other one, so then it was like pulling it like sideways,
0: sort of? Well, so then it didn't have as much play. There's not as much play okay. in the cable because it's tightened up. And like I said, normally, the difference is only... I want to stress this. The, normally, the difference is only 0.04 inches, which is tiny. The difference on this plane was 1.76 inches, which is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So the NTSB could not determine the exact measurements of the plane's turnbuckles before the maintenance check... However, it was clear to them that the adjustments made resulted in the flight data recorder pitch control measurements showing a nine degree nose down loss of travel, which restricted the airplane's elevator travel to seven degrees nose down. So like I said earlier, normally nose down, they should be able to do 14 to 15 degrees nose down, but they could only do seven because of this turnbuckle difference.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So that's why they couldn't, when they started going up, they couldn't go back down. Right. They couldn't use the elevator to push the plane back down because it was malfunctioning. So, you know, normally we talk about how before uh, a flight, you know, the pilots will go around and externally look at the plane to make sure everything's okay. Uh, and the first officer did it in this instance. And the only way he could have noticed, the only thing he would have seen, the, the only visible sign of this problem, would have, he would be able to see that there was a slight change in the elevator's resting position outside the plane. Mm-hmm. But that horizontal stabilizer is 15 feet above the ground. So looking from the ground, looking up at it, you probably wouldn't be able to tell that it was, yeah. you know, that there was a slight seven-degree difference on it. In fact, investigators could not observe a conspicuous change in the elevator position when they did the test themselves. Hmm. I think probably the only way he, they could have noticed is if, like, the first officer had pulled out, like, a 20-foot ladder and climbed up, climbed you know, up, and, yeah. and looked at, or maybe a 15-foot ladder, climbed up and looked at it. But, you know, they ostensibly rely on maintenance to do the job right. You know, they're just looking for anything major yeah, outside of the plane. Okay, so you know, we keep talking about this, you know, the elevator, that's the thing we're really focused on so far. But you asked a question earlier, you know, why had the plane flown correctly before this? Why did it fail on this particular flight? So then you start to wonder, was there a catastrophic failure? Did something snap? And, you know, we talked about here, I didn't mention the turnbuckles didn't snap. All that was fine. It was still rigged up. It was Uh rigged up incorrectly, but it was still working. So why did the plane nose up so severely? Just because they can't, pushed down adequately doesn't account for the fact that the plane nosed up uncontrollably. So then you start to wonder, was there a secondary cause? Was there something else going on here that caused the plane to pitch up in the first place that they then couldn't nose down? The
1: plot thickens.
0: Yes, it does. (laughs) So I mentioned kind of in passing earlier that one of the things the crew does in their pre-flight is to finalize their weight and balance. The dispatch release for this flight shows that a maximum of 32 bags was allowed on the flight. One of the ramp agents stated that 23 bags were checked and 8 bags were carried on the plane, for a total of 31. Two of the bags were heavy, with an estimated weight between 70 and 80 pounds. The ramp agent informed the captain of this, but the captain said it would be fine because one of the passengers was a child. So the child weighs less, which would allow for the extra baggage weight.
1: So they are just maxed out, because you said it was a full fly right. like and they have overweight luggage there a couple of
0: yeah. overweight bags but like we said there was a child which should offset it uh-huh so the weight and balance program for air midwest assumed that all adult passengers weigh 175 pounds and a child weighs 80 pounds so since they have a child instead of an adult that gives them an extra 95 pounds of wiggle room two heavy bags you should be okay the crew determined that the weight of the airplane would be 17,028 pounds and a center of gravity position of 37.8 mean aerodynamic cord. We'll get into that later. Which puts them in the limits of 17,120 pounds and 40% MAC. So their maximum takeoff weight was 17,120 pounds. They estimated they weighed 17,028 pounds. So they estimated they were... that, <laughs> that is, That's really close. Yeah, that's an, and it's an estimate. Right. They're like, what is that, 92 pounds away from their maximum takeoff
1: weight? Yeah, that's that's the idea of being 90 pounds away from being overweight on a plane is crazy to me.
0: Well, especially when you're talking about a total of 17,000 pounds. 90 <laughs> is a very small percentage of that. Yeah. Like what is that Actually, I do want to know the the percentage. Yeah. So you're looking at uh, 90 pounds is roughly half a percent of uh the total weight that they're talking about. So you know they're doing some estimations and they estimate that they're like yeah we're at about 99.5% of our maximum takeoff weight yeah
1: that's i don't know i, like, I don't like that i guess it is a maximum takeoff weight so I mean.
0: yeah but these are the numbers they have they're supposed to trust them right uh-huh. like this is this is procedure and we talk about this this is what airlines and airplane safety thrives on is procedure and the numbers and you know making sure everything's fine and they ran the numbers and It's close, but it's still within the limits. Mm -hmm. Real fast, I talked about mean aerodynamic cord there. Again, PLA, that's going to be MAC. So if you hear me say MAC, that's mean aerodynamic cord. It's just a measurement of where the center of gravity is on the plane. So that's something that all planes need to worry about is like how the weight is distributed on the plane. I I don't know if you've ever been on a really small plane, but I've been on like really small commuter planes before, you know, traveling on an airline Mm -hmm. plane similar to this actually. And, you know, I've had flight crew come along and tell people to move in the cabin (laughs) to try to redistribute the weight to make sure it's more evenly spread out. Because you want to make sure that the center of gravity is in the correct part of the plane, that it's not too heavily loaded in the front or too heavily loaded in the back because you could result in the plane being
1: difficult to control. Yeah, you don't think about that in big planes, but in a small plane, yeah.
0: Yeah, not as much of an issue on a big plane, but on a smaller plane like this, absolutely an issue. So the NTSB determined that the actual weight and balance of the plane was about 17,700 pounds. And remember, we said the limit was 17,120. So the NTSB determined that they were close to actually 600 pounds over their maximum. Wow. And they were at about 45.5% Mach. On top of being heavy, their center of gravity was way towards the after the plane, further than it should have been, out of limits.
1: And that's why I was pitching up because they had too much weight in the back.
0: Correct. There you go. You nailed it. That's why this plane had flown okay before. The plane hadn't been overweight. The plane had not had its center of gravity at the back of the plane. So previous flights didn't have any issues with this. They were Even though the elevator didn't have full range of motion, they were able to control the plane. They didn't need the full range of motion because there were no issues. (laughs) Right. Now you've got two issues overlapping causing uh, this incident here. And like we mentioned, the airplane did fly 10 times after that maintenance check. Mm-hmm. but this was finding the flight that was the most aft loaded. The center of gravity was way aft. And so they needed that additional nose down pitch, which they just didn't have.
1: And so w- what was it that was, I mean, was it just the luggage or the passengers overweight or like what?
0: Oh man, you are going to wait till we get to, we're going to get to that <laughs> in just a bit. Okay. You're, you're going to be blown away by this one. Before we get to that though, I just want to comment that the NTSB did tests And they determined that either the restricted elevator travel alone nor the aft center of gravity alone by themselves, neither of which would have caused that uncontrolled pitch up that led to the accident. It was because both of these things overlapped and happened at the same time that the accident occurred. Just that crazy, crazy
1: chance that it
0: all. Right. Yeah. And that just goes to show, I mean, that's one of the recurring themes of this this podcast is like, it's never like, oh, no, one thing went wrong and now this is catastrophe. It's like, oh, it's compounding things that all line up and cause an incident. Yeah. So the weight, what happened? (laughs) Why was this plane 600 pounds over maximum weight when it shouldn't have been? The reason it was off is the program that Air Midwest used to determine the weight and balance for the planes had incorrect figures. Oh. In 1968, there was an advisory circular about weight and balance that was published by the FAA that had been revised three times and the third revision was done in november of 1995 and at the time it was 8 years before this incident at the time it was the most current and it suggested that the weight for an adult passenger should be estimated at 180 to 185 pounds depending on the time of year and that checked bags should be estimated at 25 pounds
1: and this is winter
0: correct it is winter uh, and also i think if you remember what i said earlier they were estimating 175 pounds as an adult oh which is Yeah. Which is lower. Not by much, but, you know, if it's 10 pounds lower times 19 people, that's 190 pounds right there. Mm -hmm. And also the check bag should be at 25 pounds. We haven't even gotten to the bags yet. The advisory circular also notes that air carriers should consider conducting a reliable survey to establish average weights for their specific operations and providing the results of the survey to the FAA. Air Midwest revised their weight and balance program in May of 2003 And if the pilots had used these new updated figures, they would have seen that they were out of their weight and balance limitations. That's all to say that over time, people have just gotten heavier. And the figures hadn't been updated to reflect that. It's scary to think that the weight difference of 19 people and their bags threw it that out of whack. Or 19 people put on that much more weight that uh, the plane couldn't account for it. You know, the center of gravity moved too far back. The plane was too heavy to take off.
1: Yeah, that's that's crazy to think what the... A, I don't even want to look at what the average weight of the average human is over time. That's probably <laughs> depressing. So, according to the CDC, in 1999,
0: the average American male weighed 189.4 pounds. Then in 2016, they weighed 197.9 pounds. So, in 17 years, the average American male has gone up in 8 pounds. 8 pounds. The average American woman... Weighed 163.8 pounds in 1999 and weighs 170.6 pounds at the end of 2016. So we're looking at about a seven pound gain there. That's, you know, it's not huge, but, you know, we're only looking at a, what, like a a 17 year window there versus, yeah. you know, a couple of decades, you know, old data that we were looking at over here in this particular incident.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, like over 50 years of it, it's been like.
0: It's been like crazy probably. Yeah. Okay. So we have uh, our findings here uh, from this incident. Mm-hmm. The captain and the first officer were properly certified and qualified under federal regulations. No evidence indicated any pre-existing medical or behavioral conditions that might have adversely affected their performance during the accident flight. Flight crew fatigue was not a factor in the accident. So, laying no blame at all on the
1: crew. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, because it sounds like they were even trying to fix it.
0: Yeah, I mean, they were doing their best to try to get it back under control. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't know that it was going to be impossible because they couldn't nose down enough.
1: But... I guess there, there was no blame on the pilots for not trying to reconfigure the weight distribution.
0: Well, they followed their procedure. Okay. According to their numbers, everything was fine. Everything checked out. In reality, that wasn't the case.
1: Oh, I was thinking more about like the balance, like making sure passengers were on the right side, you know, like the weight distribution.
0: Yeah. Even their Mac, according to them, was within bounds, was within range. Hmm. Like the distribution was okay, according to all the numbers that they ran. Okay. Just the numbers hadn't been updated. And I I think, if I remember right, I think the NTSB even went as far as, like, in investigating this incident, they went as far as contacting the physicians who uh, cared for all of the victims of this crash. To get their weights? To get their weights to try to come up with as accurate of a figure as possible. And that's how they kind of start to realize, like, oh, the numbers that we've been using are wrong everywhere like that's that kind of start well, i'm getting I'm, I'm spoiling something's gonna happen mm-hmm. we're talking about it in a bit but yeah this starts to make everyone wonder like how do we come up with these numbers do we need to update these numbers okay but anyway back to the findings the accident airplane was properly certified and equipped in accordance with federal regulations except for the elevator control system no evidence indicated the airplane was improperly maintained the recovered components showed no evidence of any pre-existing structural engine or systems failure so the plane was fine. There was just this one maintenance thing that messed up. Mm. The accident airplane entered the detail six maintenance check with an elevator control system that was rigged to achieve full elevator travel in the downward direction. So they're saying the elevator was fine before it went in for maintenance. It was the maintenance that was supposed to take uh-huh. care of it that actually made it bad. It broke it. What well, it didn't break it, but it made it not. Yeah, well, full range of motion. Essentially broke it. Right. The accident airplane's elevator control system was incorrectly rigged during the detail six maintenance check and the incorrect rigging restricted the airplane's elevator travel to seven degrees airplane nose down about one half the downward travel specified by the airplane manufacturer. So they could only nose down about half of what they should have. The changes in the elevator control system resulting from the incorrect rigging were not conspicuous to the flight crew. Like we talked about, you really Mm -hmm. couldn't tell from an external examination something was wrong. The Raytheon Aerospace Quality Assurance Inspector did not provide adequate on-the-job training and supervision to the structural modification repair technician's mechanic who examined and incorrectly adjusted the elevator control system on the accident airplane. They both did not diligently follow the elevator control system rigging procedure as written. They missed a critical step that would have likely detected the misrig and prevented the accident. So just blaming the technicians, the mechanics on this one. It seems like it's just the one because the other guy was
1: training. Right. He didn't know.
0: Yeah, he did. But yeah, I mean, then it becomes like, I mean, obviously someone's telling you how to do it, but then you're like, but shouldn't we follow the steps? You're like, Mm -hmm. you have the full steps and checklist in front of you. But you're right. I mean, it's the person training. They should have done a good job. A complete functional check at the end of maintenance for critical flight systems or their components would help to ensure their safe operation, but no such check is currently required. Flight 5481 had an excessive aft center of gravity, which combined with the reduced downward elevator travel resulting from incorrect elevator rigging rendered the airplane uncontrollable in the pitch axis. Air Midwest's weight and balance program at the time of the accident was not correct and resulted in substantially inaccurate weight and balance calculations for flight 5481. The program is also unacceptable because it may result in an inaccurate calculation of the airplane's center of gravity position. So they're just like the numbers and the tables they were using were wrong. Mm -hmm. And obviously resulted in the wrong weight being calculated and the wrong center gravity being calculated. Yeah. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the airplane's loss of pitch control during takeoff. The loss of pitch control resulted from the incorrect rigging of the elevator control system compounded by the airplane's aft center of gravity, which was substantially aft of the certified aft limit. Contributing to the cause of the accident were one... Air Midwest's lack of oversight of the work being performed at the Huntington, West Virginia Maintenance Station. Two, Air Midwest's maintenance procedures and documentation. Three, Air Midwest's weight and balance program at the time of the accident. Four, the Raytheon Aerospace Quality Assurance Inspector's failure to detect the incorrect rigging of the elevator control system. Five, the FAA average weight assumptions in its weight and balance program guidance at the time of the accident. And six, the FAA's lack of oversight of Air Midwest Maintenance Program and its weight and balance program. So it's kind of a general summary of all of the things that we've we've mentioned so far. And then, of course, you know, the thing that that we're always curious to hear about, like what are the recommendations after this incident? And of course, they came up with a few recommendations here. Adopt a program for performing targeted surveillance and increased oversight of maintenance practices for air carriers to ensure that maintenance instructions are being followed as written and that maintenance personnel, including but not limited to management, quality assurance, tooling, and training personnel, as well as mechanics are following all steps in the instructions unless authorization has been granted in accordance with the air carrier's maintenance program. So just keep an eye on maintenance, make sure everyone's following the documented procedures and just, you know, (laughs) they're there for a reason. Uh Require air carriers to modify their existing maintenance manuals if necessary so that they contain procedures at the end of maintenance for a complete functional check of each critical flight system. So just kind of like a, hey, when you're done with maintenance, Review it all. Make sure everything is operating correctly. Like
1: check it? Like physically check and make sure it moves correctly?
0: Yeah, like a functional check. So yeah, you know, actually make sure that everything is functioning and working the way that, that it should. Yeah.
1: Prohibit inspectors
0: from performing required inspection item inspections on any maintenance task for which the inspector provided on-the-job training to the mechanic who accomplished the task. This is what we talked about. Yeah. You know, don't let <laughs> uh, an inspector do, you know, stamp it twice he can't stamp for the mechanic and can't stamp as the inspector you know there there needs to be another person who inspects the work identify those situations that would require the use of actual instead of average weights in weight and balance computations and incorporate this information into advisory circular 120-27 aircraft weight and balance control so just be better about using actual weight instead of average weight because i mean there's an argument to be made here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We have the technology to do on-the-fly weighing at you know when people are boarding the plane.
1: Uh-huh.
0: This could be incorporated to use actual weight instead of average weight. The counter argument is that it might slow things down. People might be embarrassed, like not, not want to be weighed. I mean, I there could be a way to to have this done where people you know when they scan their boarding pass, they just very quickly step on an electronic scale and, it and doesn't the data. Yeah, it doesn't display right. The data is just automatically parsed and then. If there is a misbalance, then, you know, they could just be alert the crew. They're like, hey, swap these passengers or something like that. Right. Yeah. But very few airlines do this kind of thing. It's, it's really not used. So what this advisory circular is talking about is like, figure out situations where you would need actual weight instead of average weights. Because uh, it is used sometimes, but it's really, for the most part, not used.
1: Seems like even just smaller planes, maybe it should be used because they have a smaller margin for error. You would think so. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. And I mean, and if nothing else, you know, you can figure out a way. I don't know if they do it. You know, you can, you know what your checked bags weigh because, mm-hmm. you know, they, you weigh them all when you check in, you know, maybe find a, make sure that that's all being computed and calculated correctly. The variable, of course, is carry on bags. We, you don't know how much those weigh. You don't figure out a way to weigh those two. So that actually ties into the next recommendation, which is... Unless an actual weight program is developed and implemented, establish a weight imbalance program that requires air carriers to periodically sample passenger and baggage weights and determine appropriate statistical distribution characteristics for regional, seasonal, demographic, aircraft, and route variances. So they're saying, like, if we're not going to use actual weight, we need to come up with better numbers and model this better to take all kinds of variables into account so that we know we have a good idea of what everything weighs if we're not taking actual weights.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I always have more bags in winter and stuff, you know? It's like, right.
0: You bundle up. Yeah. You, your, your clothes are going to weigh more. And then on top of that, of course, uh, the next recommendation is to establish a program to periodically review air carrier weight and balance data to ensure that regional, seasonal, demographic, aircraft, and route trends among carriers are valid. So on top of developing better statistical models, periodically review those models to make sure that they're still valid instead yeah. of just like leaving them in the books and then not ever having any system to go back and look at them. Require air carriers that use average weight and balance programs to develop and implement weight and scenario gravity safety margins to account for individual passengers and baggage variants. And then the last one, promote the use of systems that deliver accurate weight and balance data as a preferred alternative to the use of average weight and balance programs. So, I mean, this incident happened, you know, almost 19 years ago now. We still don't really use actual weights to this day. But, you know, the models are better and, the you know, a lot of variables are taken into account. I think that the data is treated a lot more carefully nowadays and it's reviewed a lot more frequently to make sure stuff like this doesn't happen.
1: It's also probably easier to just keep track of averages and yeah, because everything's so digital now. It's like right. data by even like, you know, state or country or county, you know, and time. Of yeah, it's probably way easier to track.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, there's a lot more computerization and modernization in cockpits and even in flight operations. Like people have tablets now, right? It's like you can just carry and have, you have you know, a computer in your hand or you know, with a phone in your pocket. You can just run an app and you know, have access to all of this data and you know, have it be easier to, to compute and figure out. So Air Midwest used an average weight of 200 pounds per passenger after the accident, but the NTSB suggests that airlines use actual weight instead of average. That being said, about 70% of small air carriers still use the average. Most of them do not use accurate uh, weighing. This is an interesting tidbit about this incident. After it happened, Air Midwest actually publicly apologized for the incident. Oh. Because, you know, normally airlines don't apologize, uh, but they got sued by one of the victim's families. And as part of the lawsuit, they pressured the airline to apologize. Wow. Wow. Like, they, you know, they said that they, you know, they wanted the airline to admit fault here and apologize for the incident. And the airline did so. Wow! Eventually, Air Midwest ceased operations in 2008. And there's a memorial for the victims located outside of Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: What happened to the inspector? So
0: I can't answer that question because he's not even mentioned by name in the report. Oh. There is a section that refers to him It's on page 11 of the NTSB report. And he has his own section. It's like section 1.5.3.1, the quality assurance inspector. And I'm going to read you what it says here. Okay. The quality assurance inspector, age 50, was hired by Raytheon Aerospace uh, LLC in July 2002. He was initially hired as a mechanic at the HTS maintenance station, was subsequently promoted to foreman and secondary quality assurance inspector. He received his airframe power plant certificate in January 1985. It doesn't mention him by name. It just Mm. talks about... His work history, but doesn't say who he is. So I can't tell you what happened. Since I don't know his name, I can't I don't know if he was mentioned in any of
1: the lawsuits. But he probably, I assume he was fired, but I wonder, I just wonder if he got criminal negligence or anything like that.
0: I don't know. That's, it's, it's really weird because normally when you ask that, I, you know, I can say like, oh yeah, their name's here, and I can see what happened, mm-hmm. in, you know, in subsequent lawsuits. But for this one, I, I can't see anything about it. Well, I assume he got fired. We'll say that. I would assume so, but I can't say for certain. So, sorry to end uh, this episode on such (laughs) an anticlimactic note. But that is Air Midwest Flight 5481. Again, really strange because, you know, it's not just one thing that goes wrong. It's this overlap of two crazy things that lead to this accident happening. But through no fault of the crew, you know, they did the best they could with it. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, don't forget, check out store.roosterteeth.com for uh, new Black Box Down merch, including your bad attitude has upset me uh, mug and shirt. <laughs> I used that mug this morning when I drank coffee. I still haven't gotten one yet. I need one. Well, you can go to
1: store.roosterteeth.com. <laughs> or, or check the link tree that we have in our uh, in our social media and all that business. Yeah, it's it's got our store. It's got the
0: animated Black Box Down episodes we were talking about. All kinds of stuff. Oh, and of course, follow us on social media at Pod. But yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another episode.
1: Bye.